Welcome to Inspirations, podcast show about art, positivity, and enthusiasm. All these other directors come up to him and say after they saw the movie, like, this is the greatest movie ever. We're never going to be able to top this. From photographic perspective, from having a very smart, incisive script, from the amazing acting, the music, the editing, everything about it screams like this is a movie that does everything. This is your host, Giuliano Marinkovic, and this is my new podcast show, Inspirations. Besides other podcast shows, where I'm dealing with other interesting subjects. In this one, we will deal with art, positivity, enthusiasm, and epic human endeavors. And for the first episode, I am presenting you Christopher Saunders, movie and history buff, great guy, and we will speak about one of the greatest movies of all time, Lawrence of Arabia, directed by David Lean, released in 1962. The movie also won seven Academy Awards in 1962, including the Best Picture. And it is not secret that this movie was one of the greatest inspirations for many movie directors, and it sort of gives the maximum potential of the movie projection in cinema. So, what is the impact of this movie? Why it is so important artistically? For all these questions and more, I will turn to Christopher Saunders, which will be my guest in a minute. Uh, welcome everyone to a new podcast show called Inspirations and uh, I'm happy to announce that today I have a special guest, uh, Mr. Christopher Saunders and uh, when I was thinking what could be the topic uh, of the discussion for my first show, I, I, I was thinking, you know, where, where could I go, what could I present and then recently I put my Blu-ray of Florence of Arabia, which is one of the greatest movies ever made. And I don't know, I watched it for about 10, 15 times. I can't recall how, how much already. And I was watching it again on my projector and seeing what a really amazing movie this is. Timeless movie. Whenever you put it and start to watch it, I mean, you are just blown away. And then I was searching through the web, trying to find some good analyst about this movie or somebody who gives good references. And I was actually surprised how it is hard to find good articles on this classic movie. And then I stumbled upon the blog called Nothing is Written, which is a great title of the blog, and really great articles of Mr. Saunders there that I read in, in one breath. And then I said, oh, oh my God, I have to try to contact him to, to get him on the show. But for the beginning, I guess, because I actually don't know much about him, but I have really good feeling about him regarding his knowledge, I guess the best would be for him to represent himself, to introduce himself to us and to see what are his life interests and how he ended up to actually appreciate this movie in the first place. So, Mike is yours, Christopher. 
Okay, thank you, Juliana. Yeah, my name is Christopher Saunders, as he says. Um, I have been writing the uh, blog Nothing Is Written since about 2008. Um, I just decided I always loved movies and wanted to write about them, so then it's worked out pretty well for me. Um, I have spent most of my life studying and watching movies and also uh, history in general, which makes Lords of Arabia a very appealing topic for me to uh, study. Um, one thing that always interested me about Lawrence, and I think I talk about this a little on my blog, is how different biographers give drastically different pictures of, of what kind of person Lawrence was. You know, you can read two completely different biographies of Lawrence and get completely different pictures about who he was, how honest he was, what he actually achieved in the Middle East. And then you go back and watch the movie and see, you know, how it reflects, you know, the debate, what biographies they may or may not have used in referencing it and how truthful Lawrence's own writings were and how they were represented in the movie. Uh, so there's a lot to digest, both from a cinematic standpoint, and it is a, an amazing movie on all levels, and also from a standpoint of, you know, sort of an entryway into how Hollywood tackles history generally. Oh, oh yeah, that's an actually great introduction to uh, to the topic. And I'm just actually wondering, since you actually mentioned the historical perspective of the character, uh, and of course we know that uh, there is a great book of the T. Lawrence himself, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, uh, and I and the movie is based on that and I do recall that this screenplay writer uh, actually referenced some of the sections but I, I'm personally wondering what's your take uh, how the movie is capturing real Lawrence from historical perspective well obviously movie will have historical inaccuracies I presume like most of the movies but it's a, that kind of a medium and you are making a movie artistic interpretation of life and also some poetic uh, energy will be always stuck there depending on the different director but from your perspective uh, what do you think what is the correlation of the real character of Lawrence and the Lean's picture well I think the the Lean picture is sort of a synthesis of different viewpoints because there were uh, as you probably know, two screenwriters who worked on the movie, Michael Wilson and Robert Bolt. Um, and they both, they approached the movie, it seems, from very different perspectives. Uh, Wilson's screenplay, I haven't gotten a chance to read it. It's very hard to come by, but just from the outlines and the discussion of it that you can come across, uh, Cineas has done a number, Cineas Magazine's done a number of articles on it. Wilson was very interested in the political aspects, both of Lawrence and his activities. Uh, whereas Robert Bolt, uh, who had been a playwright mostly before he wrote Lawrence, uh, wanted to get into the psychological perspective of what kind of person Lawrence was. And I think David Lean, the director of the movie, was more in sympathy with Bolt's views than with uh, Wilson's, which is why he fired Wilson and hired uh, Bolt. So I think the idea that uh, Lean always said that he had, I don't remember the exact quote, but he had an affinity for a crazy Englishman. Lawrence certainly fits that uh, viewpoint. 
Bold, I think, he would, he claims, he wrote in uh, what he called an apologia for the screenplay, which was only published after his death, where he talks at some length and he claims that Seven Pillars of Wisdom, uh, Lawrence's memoirs, were his only source. But the movie came out uh, in the middle of a very heated time in Lawrence's historiography. There was, uh, a few years ago, there had been a biography by the writer Richard Aldington called Lawrence of Arabia Biographical Inquiry, which is a very critical portrait of Lawrence that, that views him as being you know, fundamentally dishonest and basically lying about a lot of the things he did during the Arab Revolt and his own importance in it. It was the first book to postulate that he was gay, which still a very heated topic and it was the first one to reveal that he was illegitimate that his parents were not married um and so it was hugely controversial and lawrence's family uh, his brother aw lawrence had actually tried to block the publication of that book um so there was a lot of back and forth between different biographers and different uh, historians on how they would you know how lawrence was being perceived and I think that the movie reflected that uh, because it has elements of Aldington's portrayal, especially the way it portrays Lawrence as being uh, a sadist who enjoys killing people and a masochist who enjoys inflicting pain on himself, which are certainly ideas that Aldington book, Aldington's book uh, had. Um, I will also say... Uh, that one of the movie's historical advisors was a gentleman named Anthony Nutting, who had been a British Foreign Office official in the 50s, and he actually resigned during the Suez Crisis when Britain and France attacked Egypt over the Suez Canal. And he had, he had written a biography of Lawrence not long before the movie came out, and he has a very... His version of Lawrence is very similar to, to Lean and Bolts. Uh, he's a guy uh, basically torn between being loyal to the British... A government, but also having a sort of a romantic attachment to the Arab peoples, to the Bedouin, and being unable to reconcile these two uh, competing forces within himself, and it ultimately destroys him psychologically. So, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and I think the movie does is it's not strictly accurate, but it does as good a job, I think, of capturing the different perspectives of Lawrence as a movie or fictional treatment reasonably put. Yeah, it, it, it's a, such a complex character, and as you are saying, uh, I guess we can say that movie at least reflects good overall synthesis of these multiple layers that Lean's representing to, to viewers. I think I'll also stumble upon fact that uh, Lawrence, so his brother Arnold Lawrence, had to uh, uh, give his uh, approval of the screenplay. Do you maybe know something about that? Well, that's uh, a very interesting story, I think. He had been brought on board the project early on when Michael Wilson wrote his first draft of the script. And Sam Spiegel, who was the movie's producer, uh, was a very unscrupulous individual. He didn't care about it one way or the other, but he figured if he can get Lawrence's brother to endorse the movie, you know, that'll be worth its weight in gold publicity. Uh, so he showed Wilson a very rough draft of, or I'm sorry, he showed A.W. Lawrence, Arnold Lawrence, a very rough draft of Wilson's script. Um, and Lawrence signed off on it. But 
he was never told that Robert Bolt had replaced Michael Wilson on the screenplay until he was invited to a private premiere of the movie. And supposedly, according to uh, Kevin Brownlow's account in his biography of Lean, uh, Lawrence was furious and he actually stormed out of the theater and he confronted Spiegel and said something like, I never should have trusted you in front of hundreds of people. And then he went out and he wrote a, uh, in basically an open letter to the producers of the movie, which got published in newspapers, magazines all over the world, saying, you know, I think his, his big phrase was, I shouldn't have recognized my own brother if I, he wasn't called Lawrence. And he was very critical of the movie uh, for all these reasons uh, that we spoke. He felt it emphasized elements of his character being too egotistical, being uh, too much the emphasis on the violent side of Lawrence's character. And he was furious about the movie, and he did everything within his power to try and discredit it. Uh, as he had with uh, Richard Aldington's book. But, you know, Sam Spiegel basically let it roll off his back. Uh, he was very much of the opinion that, you know, any controversy or any attention is good attention, good publicity, et cetera. So he just sort of, you know, let it go, and nobody really cared it was a hit anyway. Uh, but, yeah, it's a good as an abject lesson for don't trust movie producers with your life story. <laughs> Oh yeah, this is this is such unfortunate development. I, I didn't heard for that outcome, and when you were describing it, it uh, reminded me of the conflict between uh, Tolkien's son and Peter Jackson, and how he also didn't want to approve the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. Uh, it, it is also a, a sad story that is going on for years. Uh, maybe we can go back now slightly to the beginning, uh, to the 1962, to the premiere of the movie. And it's also one of the very complex subjects that is going on with this movie. That, it, that uh, it relates to the length of the Lawrence of Arabia. And, of course, original theatrical cat, cut had a specific length that was changed through time. So maybe you can introduce the premiere of the movie with this theatrical cut and maybe some other information that you know that was happening during the premiere. Well, the movie premiered in London, I think it was December of 1962. I could be off on the month. Uh, and it was given a big... Uh, showcase where the Queen of England and the sorted other uh, political leaders were invited to attend the premiere. Um, when the movie initially came out, uh, I think the agreed upon length was 227 minutes, three hours, uh, 47 minutes in total. And it got, in England, it got very rapturous reviews. Uh, when it was initially released in the United States a few months later, uh, it was not very well received initially. Um, there was a very famous uh, review by Bosley Crowther, the critic for the New York Times, who called it a lumbering camel opera. Um, and so the initial reviews of the movie in America were not as positive as they were in Britain. Um, for this, whether it was for this reason or uh, personal taste, you know, we went back and looked at the movie and said, well, you know, maybe we should make it shorter or cut parts of it out. 
Um, and there does seem to be some contradiction on what whose idea it was. Uh, when they were restoring the movie in the 80s, Lean said it was all Sam Spiegel's idea. And, you know, I'm the artist who had my masterwork taken away and the heartless producers, you know, cut it up. But Spiegel was dead and wasn't around to defend himself. But uh, DavidLean.com, the website, actually has or had very detailed notes from Lean showing that he was the one who decided to make the cuts himself. And it was initially cut by, I think, about 20 minutes uh, from its original length. And over time, there were numerous other cuts made. There was a version that was re-released, I think, in the early 70s. That was about 170 minutes, so it was less than three hours. So they cut nearly an hour of the movie out. Uh, and a lot of that footage was lost for a long time until the 80s when Robert Harris came along and decided we were going to try to restore the movie. Uh, and they were able to restore most of it. Um, the current cut is about 216 minutes, I think. So it's still 11 minutes short of the original premiere length. Uh, there are a few scenes we may never know if they were filmed or not, if you do a close reading of the screenplay. Um, the most famous deleted scene uh, is on the Blu-ray where uh, General Allenby, played by Jack Hawkins, has a conversation with Lawrence about... Uh, is being assaulted at Dera by the Turks and how he's a great man and should go back to the desert. Um, So-called seduction scene, right? Right. The seduction scene, I've also heard it called the balcony scene. Um, and we, that was not put back in the movie, as my understanding, because uh, they had a very bad audio match uh, for Jack Hawkins. Uh, Jack Hawkins had died, I think, in the mid-70s, and they got another actor, Charles Gray, to dub his dialogue, but he doesn't really sound much like Hawkins, and I think there are also concerns about the editing of the scene, the way it fits into the movie. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, I know you have it for your listeners. This is late in the movie where uh, Lawrence, after he gets captured by the Turks, uh, comes back to Jerusalem and tries to resign, and Alan B. him back into going into the desert. Um, and it was basically just a longer version of the scene that exists. But the way it's edited is very awkward, because there's a little insert scene where the journalist, played by Arthur Kennedy, and Claude Rains' character have a conversation after they leave the room. And in the finished version of the movie, it happens before Lawrence and Allenby have their conversation. The way it's edited on the DVD uh, or the Blu-ray release is that it's about halfway through the scene between Lawrence and Allenby. So I think it was just Lean or Harris or whomever put the the people who work on the restoration just couldn't find a way to fit that scene into the movie. Uh, so they just left it out. Um and just real quick, there were other deleted scenes that uh, were shot. Uh, there was a longer version of the scene with Jack Hawkins and Anthony Quayle as Colonel Brighton. Uh, the scene where they, which ends with uh, him saying, Lawrence, they think Lawrence is a prophet. They do or he does. Uh, that scene goes on a lot longer in the script. And uh, I believe it was more of that scene was shot. Uh, but either the audio was lost or the 
picture quality was banned, it was never put back in. So I'm not sure offhand, and I'm not sure anybody knows what was the, the missing 11 minutes still out there. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's going to likely to be restored anytime soon. And this is one of the most amazing aspects for me. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia is celebrated as one of the greatest movies of all time for years, and directors are referencing it. Martin Scorsese always likes to mention this movie. Of course, this is Steven Spielberg's one of the most favorite movies and the catalyst that make him a director today. And this is such a historical huge fact and actually in the background it is almost lost and we we don't have it we all are referencing it but it's not there and until 19 end end of 1980s robert harris fi finally is, is starting the grand restoration epic process i think it took them more than a year almost two years uh, not sure actually uh, trying to detect the movie cans and the sound elements and going through f hundreds of feet of film uh, to to reconstruct everything and i think at one point point harry even said if we will not be able to reconstruct it we will abort the the project and late in the game, like you said, they, they even had to redub the voices of the actors. So it's so amazing to me that we almost lost this uh, movie treasure. And uh, of I, I do recall it was broadcast on TV and I once catch it and probably it was a co a condensed version that was running on TV before 1980s, I presume. Yeah, I think the main one that they used was the 170-minute cut that we mentioned earlier that was originally prepared for a theatrical release, but uh, that seems to have been the one that turned up most on television. Um, the version, the first version I saw when I was a teenager was on television. I couldn't tell you offhand uh which cut it was. This would have been about 15 years or so ago, so after the restoration was done. But, I mean, it was pan scan. It was with commercials. Uh, the absolute worst way to see this movie. <laughs> um, but you can, you can certainly, I mean, from a television first, you know, producer's perspective or programmer's perspective, you could certainly see, oh, I don't want to have this movie that's almost four hours anyway. Uh, you know, five, making room for it would be a nightmare unless you're running, I guess, Turner Classic Movies or something like that. But, yeah, I mean, at the same time, why would you want to show a movie that's like, uh, you know, has basically a quarter of its runtime cut out? Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it is now amazing. It's, uh, uh, I think they did... Uh, 8K scan and then uh, downscale it to 4K. Uh, I, I do recall there were some discussions on different forums. We will maybe they will be at some point in the future, uh, maybe more longer version. I'm personally not sure. I sort of doubt it. Like you also said, the balcony scene uh, was cut for different reasons. Like they haven't been satisfied with redubbing and I think Harris also said he said that they couldn't incorporate it 
into the movie, but David Lean was still alive and the restoration was uh, accomplished and he did his approval. So I guess this is probably the, the final ver version that we currently have. Uh, maybe we, we can go to the execution of the movie itself. And just before we go into that, can you maybe just uh, really shortly go over the subject of the movie itself, what part of the Lawrence life is capturing uh, something shortly about that, and then we can talk about the execution of the movie artistically. Certainly. Yeah, the movie uh, is set, except for the prologue, during the time period of the Arab Revolt, which was uh, a scheme by the British during this First World War, to incite Arab tribes in what's now would be Saudi Arabia against uh, the Ottoman Empire, who were allied with the Germans. Um, the people Lawrence specifically were dealing with were the Hashemite family, who are now the ruling family in Jordan, uh, Prince Faisal, who was played in the movie by Alec Guinness, was one of several leaders in the revolt. And they mostly were Bedouin tribes who were dissatisfied with the Turks for different reasons. Uh, Lawrence was assigned as sort of a liaison officer uh, by the Arab Bureau. Um, in his account in Seven Pillars, he sort of went on a, a lark when Sir Ronald Spores, his boss, went over to meet with uh, the Arab leadership. Uh, in the movie, he's specifically shown as being assigned there. Uh, use your own judgment, which is more accurate. Uh, Lawrence gets... Uh, finds himself drawn to the cause of the Arabs, and he ultimately, in the movie, he convinces the Arab leadership, Faisal and Sharif Ali, played by Omar Sharif, to attack the port at Aqaba in what's now Jordan. Uh, the Arabs cross the Nefi Desert. They form an alliance with Al Abu Tai, played by Anthony Quinn. And they capture Aqaba. They convince the British to more directly support the Arab efforts. But as they go along, Lawrence uh, learns that the British are have their own plans for the Middle East, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where they're going to divide Turkish territories up with the French. And so the basic conflict of the movie becomes how much Lawrence can uh, live up to his promises with the Arabs uh, when the British are basically working to undercut them. And, I mean, there's also, of course, the... You know, the psychological struggles that the character has, um, he comes to see himself as basically a superhuman figure who can literally achieve anything. Um, and that proves to be one of his downfalls. It makes him very susceptible to flattery by the British and the Arabs. But it also leads him to take unnecessary risks, uh, which result in his getting captured and tortured by the Turkish army. And it also leads him towards the end of the movie to sort of take a, a very violent uh, turn where he admits that he enjoys killing people. And at the end, he decides to unleash the Arabs on a column of Turks and orders them all to be massacred, takes part in the massacre himself. So, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of strands to, to take apart in the second movie from a story perspective. Uh, and that's that's probably the main reason, besides the photography and the acting and everything cinematic about it, that drew me to it. Uh, this is a very 
this isn't an easy movie necessarily to digest. There's a lot of things you can chew over when you discuss it or when you think about it. Um, and you just don't get that kind of complexity from too many movies. Yeah, the the character is so complex and there is a stages through the movie as his character changes. For example, the begin, beginning of the movie, of course, after the intro scene, which is starting first with the death of Lawrence. And then we are going back into the Cairo headquarters that I'm calling the clumsy stage of the Lawrence. Clumsy Lawrence, as we can call it. And he's not very respected by his military colleagues in the headquarters, but there is something inside of the Lawrence that I would say idealistic, poetic look almost, because he's on the surface like that, but he knows more, he feels something more, and he almost has a plan plan inside him how the thing will went on. He just needs execution uh, situation for him to be put on the field and I, I like it so much because you can see it's not an ordinary man and I, I actually met people in my life they are not understood sort of but you can see complexity inside they are actually outside of the space at that moment so I'm just wondering how did you uh, felt about this first uh, act and how the Lawrence was represented from a personal perspective, yeah, a from, historical from, perspective? Yeah. Or? yeah, yeah, from your personal perspective, how, uh, when you are first watching it, how did you feel about Lawrence as a character? Well, I'll put it to you this way. Um, I saw the movie uh, when it was in, uh, when they did the uh, re-release for the 50th anniversary a few years ago. It was the first time I'd seen it in the theater. Um and I noticed during the early scenes in Cairo, especially when Lawrence is uh, you know, trading banter with General Murray, the blockheaded commander, you know, how I could tell how engaged everybody in the audience was with that. You know, they were laughing at like every line of dialogue. And I think that's a very good way to, uh, to show how effective it is. Lawrence sort of wins the audience over because, like you say, he's an outcast, casts himself as an underdog. Uh, but he does have smarts. He does have knowledge about Arab cultures. It's kind of going unappreciated. And I think, I think I kind of, I glommed on to that because I first saw the movie when I was a teenager. And I, without going into too many details, I, I, I felt the same way a lot of my life. Um, a lot of times you get put in a position at work or school or wherever where your talents, whatever they may be, aren't really being utilized. And so, you know, Lawrence's bosses are basically trying to spit him into a little hole where he's making maps. Uh, historically, he did interrogate Turkish prisoners and Arab prisoners. And that was a big part of his job as well. But, you know, nobody really cares that he knows more about the Bedouin than pretty much anybody else in Cairo or in the British government uh, until... Claude Rain's character, you know, decides to that he should go out there and become like a, a liaison or a military uh, attaché to the Arabs. Um, and, and it's it's very easy, I think, to relate to Lawrence on whatever level, at least early on. 
um, it's very easy to relate to Lawrence, whether it's on the level of, you know, this is somebody who has never had a chance to shine before and he wants to go out and prove himself, but all, or also from the level of, uh, you know, I can kind of relate to, you know, being in a situation where I'm working a job that I hate and I suddenly get to live my dream. Oh yeah, you, you you completely read my mind, and that is exactly the same feelings. And I think the movie captures it beautifully. Uh, and then we are going into the uh, match scene, one of the greatest movie cuts of all time. Uh, and, and this was also before Kubrick's uh, scene uh, with the bone, right? When it's cutting to the space station. So amazing scene. And we have sunrise in the desert and then movie uh, gets into grandiose, epic environment. And for some reason, I, I, I'm, when I'm reading the, the reviews of the Lawrence on different YouTubers and podcasters, People say, I, I'm not sure why, but they say, okay, it's a fine movie, it's interesting, but too long. It was sort of a boring... Okay, I guess different people, of course. I, I guess it depends in which medium, maybe, maybe movie has been watched. Uh, although I think my first action after the TV screening, and of course, I, I didn't think big, grand things about the Lawrence when I saw him first time... Uh, and then something happened, and uh, I think it was released on VHS, uh, VHS after the restoration, and then it got me from the second time. Um, so I'm wondering, how what went with you? Did you have this grandiose feeling for the first time ever, or it took you some time to process it and through life to actually finally get it? Yeah, like I, like I said, my first viewing of it was on television. I must have been AMC or some channel uh, where they were showing it with commercial breaks and with pan scan. Uh, so it was not an ideal situation and to, to watch any movie, but especially that movie. And I kind of thought, well, you know, the action scenes are cool, I guess, but I didn't get a whole lot out of it. Uh, the second time I watched it, I was 16 or 17, and I rented the DVD and watched it at home. And I mean, it was, that was the time that won me over. I was just completely engrossed by it and it became my favorite movie immediately. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like you say, it's, it's not a movie for everybody. It is very deliberately paced and there's a lot of uh, focus on scenery and camera work and things that, you know, an average moviegoer wouldn't necessarily uh, cotton to, for lack of a better phrase. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you can acquire the taste, it's well worth it, the effort. Yeah, we we can actually recommend to to any movie goer to give it a shot, give it a try. You will not be disappointed. It's it's really beautifully made uh, movie. Um, of course, we we talked about the complexity of the Lawrence, and I think Steven Spielberg once said that for him, this is the best screenplay ever written and it's a such a rich screenplay and how many times you watch it that the lines always get they capture the essence of the meaning i mean they are they are so great the discussions between the lawrence and uh, alan b and uh, uh, his discussions with ali uh, 
what are your thoughts about the screenplay and and the exchanges uh, with, with the characters did you also and uh, experience it so highly yeah i think that's one of the most uh, interesting things about this this movie is how well written it is uh, robert bolt as we said he's a playwright mostly he'd written the man for all seasons and a number of other plays uh, before doing lawrence And so the dialogue style is very, it's very unique. Um, his characters have a very poetic, almost florid way of speaking, but they also convey a lot with very little dialogue. Um, and I think that's a very interesting uh, approach that you don't often see in, in screenplays. Uh, I think the best measure of, of Lawrence's quality as a screenplay is how... It's centered on him in a way that other characters or other events really only come into the story as they interact with Lawrence. Uh, there aren't that many scenes where other characters are present where Lawrence is. Uh, there's a scene with uh, when Arthur Kennedy's character, the journalist, shows up in the second half and talks with Faisal. Uh, there are a couple scenes later in the movie, and even the scenes... Uh, after they captured Damascus. But even the scenes where Lawrence isn't present, they're usually either talking about him or talking about things he's doing. And I think it's a very it's a very interesting structure because in movies today, and I'll say movies anytime, uh, they will introduce characters early in the movie so that you know who they are and know how to expect them. I mean, I guess the movie does have the uh, the funeral scene at the beginning where we meet a few of the people Lawrence will interact with later on. But it just sort of trusts the audience to know what's going on and, you know, to absorb these characters and the story dynamics as they come up rather than laying everything out beforehand. Um, I do think if I had one criticism of the script, it is a bit thin on explaining the political and the historical background of the movie. Uh, I know that might, if that seems contradictory, I'll say it to the extent that not everybody would be familiar with the Arab revolt or with the world war one in the middle East. Um, so it, it's an alien topic to a lot of people, but at the same time, like I said, I think the way that Bolt and Wilson's script, works is to sort of draw you into the story so you're experiencing it from Lawrence's perspective. So whether you're meeting with Allenby or, you know, riding with the Arabs and blowing up trains, almost everything is from his perspective and you experience it along with him. So I don't think that aspect of it is as bad as it or as much a handicap as it could be in other circumstances. Oh, that is, that is very interesting perspective, actually. And I must admit, I never thoughts about it deeply but you are absolutely correct the the space and time environment they are not getting too much deep into it it is sort of taken from granted and you are absolutely correct when i'm thinking about it but as you said i think it works because it's sort of a setup universally so I guess this could be happening in another planet and another galaxy. You just simply catch the relations and the goals 
and sort of it works, which is amazing. Yeah, but you are absolutely correct. I never thought about it, but this is how it is. Um, we haven't talked about the score, and oh my god, the score, Maurice Jar, and I think it is prototype maybe of the direction of scores that happened later with movie brats with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. But I think we had this unique, grandiose atmosphere that is completely touching what the environment is trying to capture. And did did you also felt it uh, when you were watching how it is sort of really sticking outside and it's really going through every emotion in the movie? It is so strongly present. How did you felt about the soundtrack? I think that the way the music is used is very interesting. Um, it's not used as much, I think, to underline every scene or every emotion, but when it's appropriate or where it blends atmosphere, it is uh, always impeccably used. Uh, we can think, that, for instance, of uh, the scene where Sharif Ali first appears at the well and slowly rides closer to Lawrence is played completely without music. And that's, you know, you can't imagine that scene working any other way. But you also have scenes, like I think my favorite musical moment in the film uh, is Lawrence's first meeting with Allenby where they have the military march on the soundtrack as they're uh, walking through the headquarters. And that that music choice, it's a song called The Voice of the Guns, which is a traditional British military march. And just the way that it projects uh, Lawrence's, uh, how he's suddenly gone from being, you know, this outcast that nobody takes seriously to somebody who's being feted by a general and who is suddenly, you know, on top of the world, basically. A brilliant use of music for that scene. Uh, and also, I think the scene where they attack the train and he's on top of the train with the sun shining through his robes and there's just the amazing crescendo of, the, of music as he's walking along the train and all the Arabs are chanting his name. And yeah, I think Jar is very good both at, at moments like that uh, a lot of the desert scenes do have very quietly or sometimes not so quietly atmospheric scenes or songs, tracks underneath. Uh, and and it, is, it is a very complex score, especially if you take it out of the movie and listen to it. There are a lot of themes going on and there are a lot of different emotions at play. And it's very, it's very, it's definitely a way to you know, emphasize how the story develops. It, like everything else in the movie, it's very organic. Uh, the, the music is very organic to how the story and the characters develop, and that's a very interesting uh, way of employing music, I think. Yeah. And, of course, you have a movie blog called Nothing is Written, which is a great line from this movie, which shows what is the core of your blog. And you are you are writing about the movie, you are following the restoration release, and that's, as I already mentioned, the first article that I read about the balcony scene. I think that scene was uh, present in the Blu-ray, but I think that is a 
special collector's edition or something like that, right? Because I have an edition with only two discs. One is the movie and another one is the bonus features. But I think there is another edition existing where there is even more material, I think. And was it that edition from where you got the balcony scene look? Yes, I have uh, the special edition with the big box of materials and the book accompanying it. And they have a third disc with a few... I'm trying to remember what's on it. Uh, They did have... It's been a while since I've gone through the special features. They did have a couple other uh, documentaries that weren't on the two-disc release. I remember there's one where Eddie Fowley, who's a movie's production manager, was really giving a tour of the different shooting locations in Spain. Um, and I think they had a few promotional shorts uh, from the movie's original release that weren't on the the other version. Yeah. Uh, have you been, never been able to watch the movie on the big screen? Uh, yeah, I saw it... Uh, at during the uh, when it was released in October 2012, uh, I saw it in theaters. I went to see it with a bunch of my uh, friends who were a bit skeptical, but they ended up loving it, and it was a, it was a great experience because I did not know how uh, it would go over with people of my age group. I mean, I'm I'm in my late twenties, and I wouldn't think that too many people in that demographic would have been big fans of that a movie like that. But I mean, it, it was a big hit with them and with everybody else who was there. Um, I think the thing, like I noticed, I talked about this a little bit earlier when we, when we talked about the early scenes in the movie, but you could tell the audience was really being drawn into the movie. Uh, the first scene with Sherry Folly, you could hear a pin drop in the theater. Uh, another scene uh, that had a really, got a really strong reaction. And I was a bit surprised by this. But the scene where he gets captured and uh, Jose Ferrer shows up and interrogates him and makes sexual advances towards him, it's just, it wasn't even an explicit reaction so much as you could tell, like, everybody's on the edge of their seats, not knowing how Lawrence is going to escape from the predicament. And besides, you know, the visual uh, component of seeing a movie, a 70 millimeter movie, although I think it was in 4K, but a movie that was shot in 70 millimeters on a screen, you also had the, the added audience experience, which is something I had never experienced before. And it, it was certainly made it in, you know, a unique experience. Yeah, and I was also lucky that I finally saw it on the big screen on 2015. It was a Cork's film festival here in Ireland and I was so curious to see the reaction of the audience and I can tell you it was packed uh, hall. Uh, it was uh, presented here in Cork's Opera House and the atmosphere was so great and I was not disappointed at all with the reactions of other people and even at the end the guy that was sitting near me we were standing up the movie was uh, was getting over and he turned to me and he said oh my god this is a great movie and I said yeah I know I watched so many times and yeah so it, it was really a great experience and I can definitely recommend if anyone will ever have an opportunity watch it there it is how it meant to be i know it's hard uh, it, 
but I think there are a few sites that are tracking the movie releases, cinema releases of Lawrence uh, through the world, and it's still happening. I, I'm peeking at that site from time to time. And as we are ne nearing shortly towards the end of the interview, uh, can we speak a little bit about the impact of the Lawrence that had on other directors and how it stands today, the standards of the movie and uh, how other directors embraced it? And from today's perspective, what do you think is the Lawrence position today? Oh, I think it's still considered one of the big milestones in cinema. Uh, one thing I do remember from Kevin Brownlow's book on David Lean is that Lean would say that the people who were most enthusiastic about the news about Lawrence were other directors. And he, he had people like William Wyler and Billy Wilder and uh, Richard Brooks and all these other directors come up to him and say after they saw the movie like this is the greatest movie ever we're never going to be able to top this and it's interesting because you see you see directors who make like big epic movies are the are ob the obvious ones that uh, draw from it but you know you even see directors who you wouldn't think like that spike lee has said that it's one of his favorite movies or uh, john woo uh and it, it just seems to be somebody, it seems to strike a chord with filmmakers, regardless of whether they're Scorsese or Spielberg or somebody uh, who makes a completely different kind of movie, in that it shows, I think, better than any one other movie, the, potentials, uh, the potential of cinema, uh, both from a photographic perspective, from having a very smart, incisive script, from the amazing acting, the music, the editing, everything about it screams like this is a movie that does everything uh, and i think that it connects with filmmakers of all kinds on that level if no other yeah and it also draws you into the story and yeah we spoke before but that uh, the, the story itself is taken sort of for granted but through the years I, I encountered different aspects of the Lawrence story and in different sources and this is how I also dig a little bit deeper about the historical environment in the World War One. And I'm I'm wondering uh, there was actually a few follow-up um, movies or pieces that are sort of a uh, Lawrence sequels. There is one TV movie made called Lawrence After Arabia where Rife Fines stars as Lawrence itself. So I'm wondering, have you maybe watched that movie? I have. Um, it has its drawbacks being a made-for-TV movie. It's very talky and it gets into a lot of the political machinations of the uh, Paris Peace Conference. So it's very interesting, but it's not obviously not going to be the same kind of movie. I do think uh, Ray Fiennes is very good as Lawrence. He's not as good as Peter O'Toole, but that's a pretty high benchmark to clear. Uh, but I, I do think that that movie is very interesting in that it, it shows a lot of Lawrence's character, how he was affected by the war especially, 
And it, it's definitely interesting if you like Lawrence of Arabia to you know try and seek it out. Yeah. We could definitely recommend it. And yeah, I like that movie very much. Um, and if I recall, Steven Spielberg actually picked Ray Fiennes because of that movie for the role in Schindler's List. And uh, there is another also interesting uh, reference towards Lawrence of Arabia, although through the historical character, but I think it's related through the movie Impact 2. It is the TV series called Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And the first episode, uh, which is happening in Egypt, 1908, the young Indy, Henry Jones Jr., played by, I think, Cory Carrier at the time, actually meets Lawrence there in the Egypt desert and he becomes his great... Uh, impact in in his life as an archaeologist and so on and actually as series progressed later young Indy was played by Sean Patrick Flannery and one of the episodes actually ends up on Versailles conference meetings and there we can see Lawrence together with Prince Faisal where Lawrence again is trying to fight for it for the political cause of uh, Arabs with stronger independent state and so on uh, so it, it's another very interesting correlation with the movie and sort of a dandum and of course because it was made of course by George Lucas and by Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment producing company so I guess that has something to do with it but I'm wondering have you maybe watched these episodes at some point uh, yeah and there is an, another one where he is involved with the uh Battle, third battle of Gaza. Where exactly. He, yeah, where he and uh, Indiana Jones work together to help the Australian Light Force capture Beersheba and Gaza from the Turks. Um, yeah, I mean it, that that is a very interesting series. I I don't I think it was kind of overlooked at the time, but if you're a history buff, you know it's amazing to see how much uh, how they fit. Indiana Jones into all these different scenarios. Um, the portray—I mean, Lawrence. I think he's the sort of person where, if he weren't real, it would be impossible to invent him. So it's hard, in that sense, it's hard to think that Indiana Jones would not have encountered him at some point. There's so much uh, interlope overlap between their uh, personalities. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a clever way to uh, bring that. Bring him into the story, definitely. Oh, oh my God! So, so you watched all these things, and I'm so, so uh, uh, surprised that that you know for this series that is so amazing. Yeah, this is one of my greatest series, TV series that I ever watched, and like you said, I think it's unfortunately overlooked, and it was not a. Um, financial uh, success in United States when it aired on ABC in the 90s, but it was a big critical success and won so many Emmy Awards. And there is, it's an actually cult series now. There is a, a forum called the Raven Forum, and there are actually guys discussing every single single episodes, dissecting it. They are loving it so much. So I'm I'm so glad that you know about this series, and that that's so amazing. Uh, 
Okay, uh, Christopher, for then we can maybe say uh, something about your projects, about your blog, what are your current plans, uh, what you intend to write to, do you have some other websites? I also see that not you are not writing, of course, only about movies, but also about the history. I see some of your work works on the Watergate, which is also one of my subjects that I'm very interested in. And, uh, of course, uh, I watched Oliver Stone's movie, which is, again, not historically accurate, but because I'm interested in the subject, I uh, also sort of love that movie. So can you speak a little bit about your projects for the end? Well, right this moment, um, I am doing a lot of research on World War One for my workplace. I work at a historical center in uh, Pennsylvania, and we are having an event on the 100th anniversary of America entering the war. Uh, so a lot of my recent posts have been things that I've come across in my research uh, relating to specifically where I'm located, Somerset County, uh, which is just, uh, just south of Pittsburgh. Um, one story that I wrote about it a little in my... Uh, in a blog post, I'm going to hoping to write a full-length article on it. it. Was about a gentleman named Charles Klinga who was either a German spy or a complete imbecile uh, who drew a lot of attention to himself. Uh, I came across him in a book about uh, the home front, where it was mentioned that he was beaten up by a, a patriotic American mob in a small town near here called Salisbury. And I did a little research on that. I found a lot of articles in our archives at the Historical Center about this incident. And then I found his uh, FBI file and found that he had been tracked all over the country. Uh, he had worked, apparently, he practiced medicine without a license. He had tried to sell explosive chemicals uh, to people. He was making pro-German and anti-American remarks everywhere he went. And eventually he got attacked by a mob and beaten up and uh, driven out of town on the trolley. Uh, all that's missing is I need to figure out, if I can, what happened to him after that. Uh, so, yeah, I've been doing a lot of research on the World War One era. Uh, Watergate and Richard Nixon is a, is a pet subject of mine. I studied the 60s as a focus in, at university. And so I still occasionally return to it. And unfortunately, uh, contemporary events make a lot of it very resonant. Um, but yeah, for right now, I'm writing a lot about more on history than movies. I'll get back to movies eventually, though, I'm sure, because that's movies will never go away. Absolutely. And blog is uh, your blog is absolutely great and should be recommended to everyone. And I'm, I'm so happy that I was able to reach you and I had a, such a good feeling that it will be a, it will be a very, very good uh, Lawrence discussion. Uh, can you say uh, the website of your blog and how can people contact you if they are interested more to speak about these subjects? Yes, my blog is uh, nothingiswrittenfilm.blogspot.com. Uh, I have an email associated with the account, which is groggydundee at gmail.com. Uh, that's the handle I post under. It's uh, a private joke. And, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk with any movie fans, history buffs, anybody who wants to reach out. I mean, this is doing this podcast has been a lot of fun, and it's been a, a great honor to speak with you. 
thank you so much, Christopher. All the best wishes, and I hope you'll stay in touch. And I see you have so so many great subjects uh, inside you that I think audience will be very interested to hear. So at some point in time, we could maybe find another uh, really great thing to discuss. I'm looking forward to. I have to best of luck uh, with you and your podcast. Thanks so much, Chris. See ya. Take care.